everyone. Welcome to the Lifted Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Denham, and this is a place for us to talk about what we're doing every day to raise our vibration and understand ourselves more deeply as energetic beings and co-creators. All right, so today you're going to be hearing from John Liu, and John is actually such a wonderful friend of the house here in Topanga. He's been working with my other housemate, Darius, on a few different projects having to do with ecosystem restoration and regeneration and overall education about what's going on on the planet and how we can come together to shift uh, our perspective and our understanding around what is necessary to move into this new paradigm of living in more abundance and really bringing life back to the earth. And uh, he and Darius worked on Kiss the Ground together, which is an awesome and super important film on Netflix. So definitely check that out after you listen to this one. Um, So I've been just honored and uh, so grateful to be around John for a while now and witness him, you know, expand and grow and teach And uh, I really just feel like a student in his presence, honestly. (laughs) So I feel the same in this episode. And I'm really excited that you're going to get to be in my shoes as well and just learn from him. So I'll tell you a little bit more about John. He is a filmmaker, environmental educator, and the founder of the Ecosystem Restoration Camps. And he also serves as Ecosystem Ambassador of the Common Land Foundation, And as a filmmaker in 1995, he had a history with working with CBS and uh, the World Bank eventually asked John to document the ecological restoration of the Los Plateau in China. So we talk a lot about his work with the Los Plateau in China in this episode and uh, what measures were taken to turn this desertified landscape the size of Belgium into this abundant, thriving ecosystem. And uh, of course, we talk about, you know, all the little details around that and uh, ecosystem restoration in general. Uh, But since learning that it's possible to rehabilitate large scale damaged ecosystems, John has really devoted his life to understanding and communicating the potential and responsibility to restore these lands on a planetary scale. And again, John was recently in Kiss the Ground, and he's also worked on numerous and award-winning film projects, including Hope in a Changing Climate, Green Gold, Jane Goodall, China Diary, Leading with Agriculture, etc. He has an amazing, you know, history of work in film and television and, and everything. And I also want to share the mission of the ecosystem restoration camps with you because it'll give you some more context. So Their statement reads, we believe that all beings are equal and endowed with certain inalienable rights. We voluntarily, joyfully, and with peaceful intent wish to restore basic ecological function so that all people and all living things can live together in harmony. We choose to work together to restore the fundamental ecological integrity of the earth and to train large numbers of people to do this so that methods learned can be adopted throughout the world. So I hope that gives you a broader understanding of what we're going into in this conversation. John has so much wisdom to offer us, and I hope that you, you know, eventually leave this conversation today feeling empowered and uh, more knowledgeable about what's going on with our planet and 
honestly more optimistic because John really helps us understand that there are real solutions and uh, it's absolutely possible to live in a more abundant world and a more unified world together. So if you feel like a friend might benefit from this information, please feel free to send it along or share it on your social media accounts. I feel like this conversation, this topic particularly, is so, so important to spread the word about and really bring people into the conversation. So I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, if you're someone who's showing up every week on Wednesday, I love you. I see you. And if you're new to the show, episodes drop every Wednesday morning and uh, there's some beautiful guests on here. So I'm so grateful to be here with you. And uh, that's it from me. Enjoy this conversation and I'll talk to you on the flip side. John, so the first question I love to ask people is, how do you like to start your days off? Do you have any rising rituals or routines that you go to? I usually wake up. And um, so, yes, normally I take a shower. <laughs> but um, there are cases where I have been doing meditation in the morning. There have been two different types of meditation, and I haven't completely determined which one uh, is more effective. Uh, but I've, I've been doing a Zen meditation with, uh, with actually uh, uh, someone who is presenting mm -hmm. a little bit. It's a bit of a, of a story. He tells a story about his life. He's spent a long time in a Zen monastery and written a number of books. It's Ed Brown, if you ever want to try to find that. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's really interesting. He, he, was, uh, he wrote the Tassenhara Bread Book, which when I was a teenager was like the go-to book for food, uh, talking a lot about different types of wellness, if mm -hmm. you want to. Um, and how have you seen that change your day or your life over time, having a mindfulness practice? Yeah, I think that I have noticed a few things that have happened to me. I've, I've noticed that my thoughts have become less chaotic and more focused. I'm not sure this is because of Zen meditation. It's really happened to me um, when I transitioned away from journalism to environmental studies. So when I did this at, a, at the age of about 40, I had been covering these huge news stories the rise of China from poverty and isolation into a global superpower and international terrorism and the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I was really into some exciting but also tragic kinds of, of, of things. And I, I um, wasn't too happy with that in a way. And I... I came to consider what 
was important to me. And then I had this sort of special moment where the World Bank asked me to film the baseline study in the China's Lis Plateau, which is in the upper and middle reaches of the Yellow River and is the cradle of Chinese civilization. So being half Chinese, but also having spent quite a number of years already in China, so I was very familiar with Chinese history and Chinese, especially Chinese contemporary history, which I was sort of participating in, in the front lines. And then when I went to the, to the cradle of Chinese civilization and I looked at it, I couldn't compute. So I was noticing that how everyone in the journalistic community, everyone in politics, everyone in economics, they were running around doing all this stuff. And then when I went to the Lis Plateau, I was standing alone on a mountaintop and looking at the ruins of a once great civilization, thinking, huh, you know, is that the result of all this human behavior? All the running around. All the running around. Mm -hmm. And when that happened to me, it was like, instead of multiple teletype machines going da 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 every day with like huge amounts of data. It all went zoop into this thing like I saw this point and I, I, I kind of focused on that point because it, it made such an impression on me that oh Actually, the things that we're pursuing in our daily lives are not as important as we think they are. Mm -hmm. In fact, they may be part of, a, of an illusion. And that we think it's important and we're focused on it, but actually we're living and we're going to die. And why are we spending our time while we're living running around <laughs> in this in this sort of what what is what is hamster it? wheel yeah, yeah yeah and it sounds like you had really seen that firsthand coming from journalism and and working with media so heavily so what that was what you might describe as kind of your wake up call your turning point at the list plateau looking over the degraded land that was like a wake up call for you well i think that it's really wonderful if we have purpose in our lives and if 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 our purpose is to go shopping then i i think it's really not a very purposeful life and mm -hmm. it doesn't lead to great satisfaction i mean you you may get one bag and want two <laughs> and you may get two and want three and if you if you carry that thought you may end up with lots and lots of bags yeah but not a great deal of satisfaction and you're always wondering why do i want another bag mm -hmm. and i think with with looking at the at the devastation of the cradle of chinese civilization and thinking about this. And then, of course, I was there to film the baseline study for a restoration project. So I started thinking about, well, could this work? You know, I mean, can you take a ruined landscape and 
make it whole, make the rivers flow and the river and the, the forests return and the meadows return and the animals and the, the birds and like insects and microbial communities and fungal communities. And I was looking at that thinking, well, my goodness, if that's possible, that's more important than anything else I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I've seen a lot <laughs> as a journalist. And so then when my mind went quiet and I thought about it and I observed it and I was documenting it so I was very focused on what I was seeing. And then I was surrounded by all the top experts in the world mm-hmm. doing this kind of work. And, you know, I said, well, actually, you know, I was 40 and I was maybe a little more than 40. I think I might have been 42 or 43 or something. Mm -hmm. And um, I just thought, huh, what do I want to do? What do I need to do Mm -hmm. for the rest of my life? Do I need to keep covering all these temporal events, which tomorrow's news is old news and everybody just sort of forgets about it. Mm -hmm. And it's also not very satisfying because, for instance, I I remember going into Pakistan and starting to understand the complexity that I was seeing with the tribal peoples and the sort of colonial residues that were there in the in the governmental structures and the bureaucracy and so on and and the inequity of Mm -hmm. and the sorrow of what was there and I was beginning to understand it and and then in the news they didn't really want to know the complexity right they wanted to know the the cathartic moment and be there at the cathartic moment because now you've seen the height of suffering and the height of 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 inequity and the height of violence or something like this and so this was putting me into places of danger mm-hmm. and of sadness and you know I was, I was looking at that and then I was looking at and then of course they don't want to work to resolve the situation. Mm. They're only reporting on the situation. So they would say, okay, you know, and, and now you're going to another country. You know, it's like, and I'm like, what? You know, now I'm here. I'm in the middle of this. I, I'm now starting to learn Pushtu and, you know, what, what's going on? Yeah. And I'm out, you know, and because they don't care about the, the result. Mm. And so this kind of bothered me. I felt like, well, I'm never finishing anything because I'm sent there I report it goes on the air and now people are uh, appalled by what's what's happening but there's no resolution and I'm sent to another country to look for another crisis Mm. and I'm like I don't think this is the right way Mm -hmm. and so when I started to look at the restoration of the Lis Plateau and you know, it was really just like two weeks mm-hmm. in the very beginning where they said, take a baseline study and give us the baseline study. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I did that. But when I came back from that, I realized, well, this is too important. Mm-hmm. And 
there is going to be a resolution. And if this is possible, this is the most important thing I've ever seen in all the stories. And they were big stories. I mean, the collapse of the Soviet Union or the rise of China, you know, all of these were the biggest stories that you could have. And then there was this. And to help our listeners just understand a little bit more about what you're referring to, you're talking about degraded land at the Lis Plateau, right? Desertification of the land, and your mission turned into restoring and renewing that land so that it could be an abundant landscape. Is that an accurate way of describing what your project was there? I was asked to document, and the, the Chinese government, the people in the region, and the World Bank, and the British Department for International Development at the time. Those were the organizations. So you had the Ministry of Finance and the Ministry of Water Resources and the Chinese Academy of Sciences. And you had international experts from all over the world who were interested in this subject, which mm-hmm. is turns out to be very few, at that time, very few people. So Restoring the land. Yeah, yeah, there weren't large numbers of, of people, but anybody who was in that field was at the top of the field because there was very few people. And then um, what happened to me was that I, uh, I, when I got fascinated by this, I, I, I wondered, like, is this possible? Because many of the experts were unsure because it had never been done. The, the, the project area for the the pilot project was 35,000 square kilometers. Wow. So that's the size of Belgium or the Netherlands. So, wow. So, so to, to take an area that was fundamentally degraded, and I, I would say it looked like a desert, but you have to consider the difference between natural deserts and places which have been desertified. So this was, and I, I also became, I, because of that, earlier experience of being pulled off of stories when I was just getting involved in them, I, I felt like, well, I want to see something through to the end and to really understand it deeply. So that's led me to spend, you know, three decades looking at, at these kinds of issues. Mm. And it's taken me further around the world. So now I've been to more than 90 countries. And so that level of understanding, again, focuses the the mind mm-hmm. more on this issue. And other things don't seem to have the same profound impact to me. Mm-hmm. So if the water is not flowing and millions of people are are affected and the land is desertifying and there's no food and you know people now are in war and they're refugees well that's something we need to deal with mm-hmm. so if you're talking about wellness or you know how to how to be healing yeah, yeah so, on a great scale so yeah. what i found was that healing the healing is in the doing and that the the earth is reflecting human consciousness. So when you have giant deserts, then something's not, not right in the human psyche, in the human understanding, and the, in, in human behavior. And I think a lot of people have not yet made that connection 
they think that they're, they're striving, but it's a little bit selfish. They're thinking about themselves. And almost they need to not think about themselves because thinking about themselves makes them think about themselves some more. <laughs> what they need to do is restore the earth and gradually all of these things change because they're all interrelated. Mm-hmm. How can we like really understand that on a deeper level? Because as we're going through our days, as we're on our little hamster wheels, it's, it's you know natural seeming to us to kind of turn a blind eye or ignore what we're seeing in our immediate surroundings. Um, so what has been like a switch that you notice has been activated in people to really start caring about renewing the planet and looking at their, you know, front or backyard and, and looking at how they can regenerate their immediate space? Like what, what starts to change for people? Well, it, I, I can really only speak for myself. Yeah. And I can say that I was confused by all the data that I was trying to filter and report on as a journalist. And when I started to study ecology, things began to make sense because what I saw are natural laws. So when you, when you start to see that there is a symbiotic relationship between all living things, and that breath, the breath of life, is, is a symbiotic relationship. It's a gas exchange mm-hmm. between organisms which breathe oxygen and organisms which breathe carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. And when, when this relationship is balanced and whole, then it has created and constantly filtered and continuously renewed the oxygenated atmosphere on the planet. And of course we're going to be healthy. This is the only planet we know that has such an amazing oxygenated atmosphere. And it's not magical. It's, it's a symbiotic relationship which evolved over billions of years. So understanding that is then to have some surety, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not my opinion yeah. that, that symbiotic relationships between life forms generated and constantly filtered and continuously renewed the oxygenated atmosphere. It's simply the truth. Mm-hmm. And to live in truth is really an important part of life. Yeah. And I think the, I mean, uh, the other thing is that everybody is flawed. And so it's very easy to make mistakes. It's very easy to do the wrong thing. And if you do, then you fall down this trap where everything is, 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 is getting worse. And so you, to, to change that, it's a paradigm shift. You have to go in the other direction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, running around and taking pictures of wars and people who are massively dysfunctional and hating each other and killing each other and stuff, well, that's a pretty dramatic shift to shift away from that to look at, like, well, how do you restore Mm. Earth systems? How do you restore 
equilibrium to to living systems. So right. I think it's very close to what you're talking about in terms of wellness. Mm -hmm. And the wellness is reflected. So the earth is reflecting what we understand and what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So the more that we do to ensure that we understand these processes because the complexity is intense. So now I've spent decades to understand this. And so the more I study this, the more I observe this, the more I document this, then there's a challenge there in academics. You have to defend the, the thesis. Mm -hmm. So my process has been to defend this thesis in public mm -hmm. rather than go into, into graduate schools and, and say, and now these professors are the chosen ones who can defer knowledge or, uh, you know, can yeah. validate my understanding. I, I, I think actually we're in a place where this subject is actually beyond where most of the academic world had gone because they had stratified or reduced things to individual separation and they don't exist in separation so you can't actually study hydrology without studying soil science and you can't study soil science without studying atmospheric science and you can't study atmospheric science without studying horticulture and botany and you can't study horticulture and botany without understanding microbiology and f fungal systems and you can't understand any of these things without understanding chemistry and geology and so suddenly you're going through this whole vast thing and I, I mean personally I had dropped out of college to be a cameraman so mm -hmm. I could understand how the camera worked and take pictures and record them and what happened to me I never really thought that I would go into academics but after I started to do this then the only people who were interested in what I had to say were like the 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 people at the top of these scientific organizations or maybe the leaders of countries who had massively degraded landscapes and they didn't know what to do and mm -hmm. but <clears throat> you know in interacting with these people I realized that actually the agency that can restore the earth is not an expert class. It's the people. Yeah. And that the people must understand what this is. And so I realized that in that way, I was like a proxy for people who wanted to study and understand this. And so that everything that I learned if I learned it personally, it's of no use, really, unless it's shared and immediately understood by everybody else. And the the situation is in crisis mm -hmm. at this point. Mm -hmm. So we can't wait even a moment. We have to act now because we're facing unbelievable levels of, of stacked crises. Mm -hmm. So here in California... So far this year, there's less than half 
of the normal rainfall. And we have to ask, well, why is that? And, well, I know why. <laughs> why is it? It's because the Pacific Ocean is the largest body of water on the planet. And from this ocean evaporates huge amounts of moisture and it comes onto the land. And for about 15,000 years, maybe 20, I don't know, Native Americans were, were tending the forests. They recognized, they worshiped, they, they held as sacred trees, which were 4,000 years old. And, and you know, to, to maintain a tree for 4,000 years is numerous generations. I mean, hundreds of mm -hmm. generations of people. And so they did this. And in the last less than 200 years, 95 to 97% of these coastal forests have been logged. And when you consider like, well, what is it that is holding this water? You know, most people see the rivers or they maybe they assume that there are subterranean aquifers and then they notice the relative humidity and the rainfall. And so they see this as water. Mm -hmm. But when you understand that 70% of the biomass, at least, I mean, in the leafy, green leafy materials, it's going to be 95% generally. So, you know, a vast amount of this biomass is water. Mm -hmm. The trees are holding the water and the humidity it, coming off. And that they're yeah. respirating and also the, the, the height of the canopy. So you're, you're, you're talking about at the climax, at the, there's evidence that there were 4,000-year-old trees, which were about 400 feet tall. So that means at 400 feet tall, that would be the place where the solar radiation was interrupted. So mm -hmm. you, you also have to study physics, it turns out. So you, you, can't, you can't understand these things until you recognize that they are multi-dimensional symbiotic systems. Mm -hmm. So they don't exist in isolation. They only exist when they're together. And what you had in California before mass colonization and massive disruptions to the landscape mm -hmm. was the highest expression of evolutionary succession anywhere on the earth. Really high that canopy? I've I've never seen it higher. Wow. The, the closest would be around Melbourne with 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 giant eucalyptus, mm -hmm. but they all burned yeah. a few years ago, so they're not even there anymore. Um, so now there's three to five percent of this climax equilibrium remaining almost wow. as a museum. So like ninety five percent of that canopy has, is. How long has it been since that existed in California? Like. Well, it was about 18, 1849 was where the mass mm -hmm. immigration and the mass genocide of numerous peoples here. Native so, peoples. Mm -hmm. So the, to understand that these people were worshiping and protecting and tending mm -hmm. these systems. And that, you know, so... The issue is that 
something really bad <laughs> took place. Mm-hmm. And until this really bad thing is is resolved. And we're talking about colonization, like well, we're the talking about of our pretty much genocide. Yeah, um, I we were talking with the tribal chair of the Amamutsun band, and and ninety eight percent of the people in their band were killed. Yeah. So only two percent fled into the deep forest and and were able to survive. So they're they're still not recognized by the federal government. Although here in California, the state and and anyone who studies anthropology or you know, they're quite aware of yeah. of this. These were the highest populations. Yeah. So it's what, an absolutely shocking statistic. I'm not sure many people even when I heard him say that, you know, just watching you guys edit, it's just shocking, like, that 98% of their people were eradicated. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think the key to this is realizing that this is not unique to California. Mm-hmm. This is part of human history. Mm-hmm. And I think... Part of the profound sadness that you find everywhere is connected to this. Yeah. And it's in our DNA. And everyone who's alive today has, is, a, is an expression of all life since the beginning of time. It can't be any way, any other way. That's, that's it. Because everything has happened to all of the people who are alive today to their ancestors for them to survive and be alive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, kind of, I I, I think, you know, meditation, we were talking a little bit about meditation. I think contemplation is also pretty critical. Mm -hmm. So if you can just consider for a while, what are the implications of certain things? Like saying there are 95% of the great coastal forests in California have been lost over the less than 200 years. And that 98% of, of a populated group of peaceful natives were eradicated you know then if you're not heartbroken by that information it's you know something you, you need you need to really uh, well you have familiarize but I love John how you explain everything from this kind of holistic viewpoint um, that we are not separate from nature at all. It's this symbiotic process. Our breath is connecting to the trees. And I think that's where a lot of our attention and awareness gets lost because we're in such a technological age now that we forget that we are innately part of earth and nature and that we're having this communication on a biological level because we, we identify more with our phones. Um, so it, it's really it's empowering to hear you remind us of this and uh, put us back in the driver's seat in a way to just get more in touch with that. 
Well, I think it's it's also really important to realize that um, there's there's different types of time. So we're often really considering temporal time. This is our time. We live in this time. Mm. This is the pop song. That's that's this is the fashion. This is well. Okay, but there's another kind of time. Yeah. In fact, there's several kinds of time. One of the things that uh, appeared in my, in, to me, was that I realized that I could look through time. So going to the List Plateau and looking, standing on the mountain and looking out at the degraded landscape, I, I, I knew too much about the history and to look out at that degraded landscape <clears throat> and realize it could not have been this way. Mm-hmm. It had to be one of the most nurturing places on the planet because it, was, it was, became an agricultural center, uh, a cradle of civilization at the same time or nearly the same time as Mesopotamia between the Tigris and Euphrates. Mm. And it's quite interesting to go there and realize, well, same thing happened. It's desertified. And so that's a clue. That, that's something about forensics, about, about ecological forensics. But to understand this is also to realize that, oh, I'm looking at at the ruins of a once great civilization. This is what is the result of destroying the ecological systems. So the rivers don't flow, the forests are gone, there's sand instead of soil, and there's just tufts of extremophytes instead of meadow flowers and and great beauty. And so, in going back and understanding what that, what I'm observing is, I realized that I could see back to the time when it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then I saw that I could go even further back and I could see how it became beautiful, that it evolved and that it evolved over billions of years from simple cellular division through the differentiation and speciation leading to infinite potential variety in genetics. Mm -hmm. And that each generation of life died and gave up its body to nurture the next generation. And when you realize that, then you see, oh, Everything is emerging, everything is growing. There's a constant accumulation. It's abundance. (laughs) And when you don't understand that and you interrupt this natural cycle, you're destroying it. And so this is what's been happening over human history. And the impacts are enormous. Mm -hmm. And few have been able to look at it because it's so big Mm -hmm. and so terrifying in its 
in its what it's revealing. It's revealing that the wages of sin are death, that that you kill your civilization, you you destroy the resources and the the abundance that your children and future generations need mm -hmm. to survive. So from this perspective, then you can also see even before this to earth time. So there was like a billion something years or more, maybe two, before evolution began. Mm -hmm. So when there was a formation of cosmic dust, of, of, of stardust forming and circling the sun, and then it's, it's molten and you know, it doesn't, it has gases, you know, so, so suddenly, oh, oh my God, you know, and then suddenly you're standing there at the edge of the cosmos looking out, and there's an infinite universe, and you're going, oh my, you know, what, you know, shall I use the red bag or the black bag today <laughs> suddenly becomes yeah. a kind of a trivial thought. Yeah. And, you know, how long can you stand there at the edge of the universe staring at at the unknown, mm. and what does it, what does it mean? What is it? What? And then, to go from that to zoop back into your body, yeah, and and look around and go, well, okay, so now forty something year old John, what do you think? <laughs> you know, what are you gonna do? <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, you're literally, we are walking miracles. It's a miracle that we even exist, you know, and, and we talk about a lot of heavy things here. We're talking about death and uh, ruin here. But what I love about your work is that not only are you bringing hope, you're proving that it's incredibly possible. And in your lifetime, in a sh pretty short span, you saw the Lus Plateau, you know, the size of Belgium transform from a desertified pretty much dead landscape into a thriving ecosystem. And I'd love to know as well, like, what was the impact on the community there? Like, how did that change their community? Well, it, it, trans, it transformed everything. So it, it kind of depends on your metrics, you know, like if you're trying to measure the changes, there are many, many ways. And so probably from the dominant cultural and political and economic thinking, then it's usually like what the United Nations calls the uh, human development indicators. Mm -hmm. So if you look at human development indicators, it's often how much money the people get on a daily basis or um, what's their nutrition levels or their IQs. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you, when you realize what's going on in degraded landscapes, you realize that food would be relatively scarce or have to come from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And when you understand about nutrition, for instance, that there are primary nutrients and there are secondary nutrients and there are very many micronutrients and that physiologically speaking these types of nutrients 
are the determinants for human development and human health mm -hmm. and glandular and and other other secretions which regulate and determine the intelligence or <laughs> the the functionality of our bodies mm -hmm. and then you think well if you, if you have a scarcity of even tiny amounts I, I know I was working on iodine for a, a, a while and you need two grams of iodine in your entire lifetime but if you don't have that then you'll have glandular disruptions mm -hmm. in your body yeah. and so if that happens over a region this affects the prenatal and, and, and childhood development well that's when the brain is forming and, and developing and you can have a lowering of IQ mm -hmm. over the entire population of an area Yep. So when you understand that, you realize the ecological health of the landscape, the availability of all nutrients for everyone is critical. Yes. Because if you have a vast population of people who have not had sufficient nutrition, mm -hmm. then they're going to be highly challenged. Yeah. And so... <clears throat> to address this is a duty mm -hmm. because we're actually not just individuals. We're part of a meta-organism. We're part of a species. And I think this is where the real dysfunction is at this, at this time. As a species, we have failed to come together and, and express our potential. So we're stressing individual development and in some ways selfishness. How can each individual or maybe family units or maybe racial national identities, you know, compete with others? Well, I don't know that it's a competition. Mm -hmm. We are a species. We're living and we're dying. And you know, it's, it's not us and them, there's just us. Yeah. And some of us are suffering. <laughs> and some of us are wildly privileged and maybe overprivileged. And there's a lot of overconsumption, there's a lot of waste, there's a lot of toxicity, and there's a lot of racism and... and, and lack of consciousness and lack of compassion for what's happening to so many people. So what, what I noticed is that these things also are all interrelated and that if you restore the earth systems, then you're addressing nutrition issues, you're addressing hydrological issues, you're addressing mm -hmm. all of these things. What I um, am thinking of as well, I, I think it's so important and I love that you're talking about how nutrients in our overall well-being or IQ are all related to our immediate environment 
I'm thinking about New York City and cities in general where there are little food deserts in um, the more impoverished places in, in big cities. And one of the things I love seeing you work on right now is um, bringing more communal gardens to Los Angeles, for example, that you're working on now. So can you talk a little bit about that and, and uh, maybe how accessible it really is to us to create gardens in our yard and open to community? Well, yeah, I think community is the word that you really need to stress here because I think as individuals, we're going to be immediately overwhelmed by the level of complexity and the amount of um, work, the degree of difficulty that that we're facing. So, um, you know, for me, after three decades of observation and study, I got used to the degree of difficulty. So it doesn't really shock me. I know how hard this is. And I think for a lot of people, they want to say it's simple. <laughs> you know, well, no, <laughs> it's it's not really simple. But at some level, it it isn't you know what, what what's interesting is it's not impossible especially not together when you yes. have community if you're yeah. together you can do it mm -hmm. if you're alone i think well it's overwhelming yeah difficult but if it, so what we have is we've created the ecosystem restoration camps movement and the ecosystem restoration camps movement allows people to come together and share in their learning and then share in the doing. So if you don't understand it, the idea of restoring earth systems is, well, impossible for you. So you're going to have to understand how earth systems function and what the relationship between human beings and soil fertility and hydrological function and biomass and biodiversity and so on works. Mm -hmm. So in order to do that, I spent a long time studying. We don't have that time anymore. Mm -hmm. And so it's necessary to learn by doing. And there are thousands and millions of people who've been studying permaculture and regenerative agriculture and these are the these are the things that we can all do together so that we can act today not study for a long time mm -hmm. and then sometime in the future do something we can do it now and learn while we do it and Just learn do it. while we do it yeah so we there's certain things that we know now and there's more to learn but we should do what we know now and learn what we don't know mm -hmm. as we're going along. And the other part of this is, this is the healing of broken hearts. Because this puts us into community with other people and allows us to ex experience the pain and the suffering and have that balanced by joy and comforting and compassion in in which we all need mm -hmm. so if we all do this together then we're all healed but if we if we try to go into meditation on our own and we can solve everything for ourselves and we don't realize that 
we are connected to everyone else and to all other living things, then the chance of success is, well, not not, non-existent. (laughs) So, So the fact that we are all connected in this way means that our collective success is our individual success. Mm. And this is another huge revelation. Another thing that is important to understand is that there are things which few people understood in the past. Like there are, I would call them counterintuitive findings. So one of the things in agriculture that has been continuous is this idea of growth and yield and and beating the earth harder and harder to produce more and more. And this led to a thought that, I mean, I actually one of the fellowships I had was to the Rothamsted Research Institute. And this institute was started back at the time of Darwin and, and Malthus. So an earlier age of, of, of talking about, so in the 18, 1800s, mid-1800s, mm-hmm. the thinking was they, they had pretty good mathematics. By that point, they were looking at higher and higher types of mathematics. And they were looking at crop yields. So they were measuring crop yields. They had markets and they were buying and selling things and they were just had a lot of data. And then they were looking at population growth rates. And they noticed that the crop yields were increasing arithmetically and that the human population numbers were increasing exponentially. Mm. And when you when you start to put the trend lines of exponential growth next to the trend lines of arithmetic growth, you realize that they cross. And when they cross, you're into a situation which you can, you can predict that there will be scarcities, that there will be um, terrible potential for famine mm-hmm. and mass death, you know. So especially Malthus had this had this thesis. And when he presented it to the scientific community at the time, the scientific community looked at it and they couldn't find any flaws in the reasoning. They couldn't say, well, that's not true. And, you know, they they started a race to figure out what could be done with crop yields. Hmm. And so they tried to increase them by artificial means. Like through tilling? No, they, tilling has been going on for almost probably yeah, 12,000 12, years. Yeah. No, but yeah, that was a, that's a process which causes degradation. Mm-hmm. But what they decided that they needed to do was have artificial inputs so they were inventing fertilizers, mm-hmm. and they were inventing. They they identified um, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium as the primary nutrients. 
<laughs> in my in my research, I would say that that's not true. Those are the secondary nutrients, mm-hmm. hydrogen and oxygen uh, and carbon are the primary nutrients, but they are so abundant that that they just thought that they didn't, you know, that, huh. that wasn't yeah. that was nothing. Yeah. And they went to the secondary nutrients. And so they started, they found that if they added nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, that they would get growth. But they just ignored <clears throat> all the micronutrients. Mm-hmm. So you can get growth, but the nutrition isn't there. Mm-hmm. So you've you basically you've lost this very important equilibrium mm-hmm. where there is mass nutrition throughout. So that was like 1800s and that has affected us all the way till present well, day. 12,000 years ago we began to do plowing. So plowing was really probably the, the largest disruption. So in na- nature there's no plowing would be equal to tectonic plate movements mm. or or volcanoes or something like that and mm-hmm. earthquakes so you know we're we're causing it's not a natural disaster it's an unnatural yeah. disaster so we are causing a disaster by turning the soil over mm-hmm. putting the subsoils up and the and then we're exposing the microbial habitat to solar radiation, which mm-hmm. means UV. When you've lost the canopy and the full spectrum light is hitting the, mm. the, the, the upturned soils, then you're sterilizing the microbiological communities. Well, those are the communities that built soils originally. So why would you imagine that that would be a good idea? Yeah. So you're, you're now into this place where it's just so false that, and then that's passed down from f- grandfather, father, son for mm-hmm. hundreds of generations, and nobody's even thinking about it. So yeah. that's what they did. We do this, we do this, we turn the soil over all the time. And so what happens? It turns from organic soils filled with teeming with life to geologic materials that are baked by the sun and and sterilized by uv radiation Mm -hmm. and well that can't be right you know i mean so so even a cameraman you know can like go and spend a a little while observing that and come back with this understanding you know it's it's like that and then in academic understandings that cannot be refuted (laughs) Yeah, that's just yeah. fundamentally true. And this is what you guys really do a great job at covering in Kiss the Ground, right? I mean, you give us really tangible ways of, for farmers especially, to avoid that happening and to to you know bring in a new way of doing. Well, one of the interesting findings that w- is counterintuitive, is that in the degraded landscapes, you can increase productivity by reducing the area in cultivation. Hmm. So this finding is completely different than the traditional concepts in agriculture. So instead of more and more land for agriculture in the Luce Plateau, 
they reduced the area in cultivation, maybe releasing as much as 50 or 60 or 70 percent of the land to nature mm -hmm. to restore natural landscapes. And when they did that, they got the water back and they got the soil back. And then they got more productivity in the smaller areas than they had in the vast areas that they were and beating to death. By that, you mean they, they just let nature take its course. They didn't touch it. Like they renewed it, but then no, they didn't they, farm they did, it. They, they touched it. They touched it. So there is a, like if you think about evolution over 3.8 billion years, I'm not sure we have 3.8 billion years if we're going to save human civilization mm -hmm. to let nature just go on its course. So the question is really how, what are the principles that underpin the concept of, of, I would call it dynamic equilibrium. Well, I'm just thinking when you say that they released like 50 to 70% of that land, do you mean that they renewed the soil and that they regenerated the land, but then they didn't farm and work with that percentage? Yes. That's what you mean. But they okay. planted trees. But they planted trees. So, and yes, so you have it. two mm -hmm. aspects here. One is regenerative agriculture, mm -hmm. where you're trying to use agriculture in a way which is not destructive. So you've maybe stopped plowing, mm -hmm. stop adding uh chemicals and start restoring natural fertility that's when the microbes and the fungus can release nutrients from minerals and make them bioavailable to vascular plants mm -hmm. but that also then when the plants die if you don't take away everything then they 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 recycle mm -hmm. into organic soils <clears throat> But in the other side of this is rewilding or <clears throat> reforestation. Mm -hmm. And that can be in many flavors. So when we look at the evolutionary succession, often people say, well, I would like to go right to the climax. So let's just plant the climax species. Mm -hmm. Well, the chances of those climax species being able to survive in a degraded state are very low because the soil has been altered, the hydrology has been altered. So you need to actually see and observe what nature does in degraded states. And what you find is that there's a rush of what most people call weeds and they don't want them. And they like, oh, kill them, get rid of them. But actually what's happening with those is that they're fulfilling a function mm -hmm. to create a pioneer canopy, an early succession canopy. And when that early succession canopy grows up, it usually grows fast and dies and grows fast and grows and dies. And then you're within a few years, you've reprocessed the soils. You can also do this by planting certain things you can decide well i would prefer not to have alien species so let's go to the early succession indigenous plants and massively seed them and then let's process the maybe you need certain kinds of minerals to balance the ph mm -hmm. and you might need organic materials, manures, or 
mulch mm -hmm. or other organic materials that you can put there. So if you do that, you and then you get the early succession growing, and then you maybe start growing the middle succession trees and in, in a diverse range rather than just row after row of identical trees, although I've seen that work too. So if you, if you were to take an early succession tree and plant row after row of early succession trees into the early succession, then you'd get rapid growth. When you got rapid growth, if you knew what you were doing and you started thinning that and you've been growing in nurseries, higher and higher succession plants, then you can like carefully take out some of the mid-level succession and plant already 10 or 12 year old trees mm. in there. And that is the perfect, but you have to be very careful of the root systems mm -hmm. because if the root systems are expressed in, in nurseries, you have to have the root systems going straight down because if the tap root is curved, then actually that this is going to affect the ability of the tree to, to stand. So the, the complexities of all of these things are what makes it so interesting, actually, that's mm -hmm. infinitely fascinating. It is so, fascinating. And, and it sounds like just from the little clips I've heard you guys working on with the Amamatsan tribe, what's the name of the leader you've been talking to? Valentin Lopez. Yeah, Valentin Lopez, yes. Um, and describing the indigenous wisdom of the root systems and how deep they really go. And, and there's, it seems like there's just so much to learn and remember from our indigenous people um, around here that it's coming back. Yeah, well, so going back to, so, so you can easily take me into philosophy or into botany yeah. <laughs> or into microbiology or into atmospheric science or wherever. Totally. But maybe the most important thing for your listeners yeah. is <clears throat> the ecosystem restoration camps. Yes. Because what I've noticed is I started having dreams. This was a very strange phenomenon because I, I started dreaming that people were waking up and in camp and they were all going to have breakfast or they're going out into the riverine systems or into the meadows or into reforestation or into regenerative agriculture and they were just happily doing this and they were having a great time and they were playing guitar around the campfire at night and they were all talking about the science and the complexity of this and how it was more interesting and more valuable than the the hamster wheel yeah <clears throat> and then you know i would wake up with this dream in my mind and i would like shake my head and go well that's a that's a fantasy nobody's going to do that mm -hmm. i was in my eeyore mode where i thought who's going to come to my birthday oh. party yeah and then um and then but because i kept having that dream I wrote about it, and I did an, I made an essay, which was published in, um, you can put the link in, it, it was called Earth Restoration Peace Camps, mm -hmm. and it was in Permaculture Magazine. And then that was re reprinted <clears throat> in, um, in another journal, and then it started circulating around on the internet, mm -hmm. and then there was reaction from the people who were, who were seeing this.
And there were thousands and then tens of thousands of people who were interested. And some were saying they were having the same dream. And so that I thought was weird. But then it was so many that we started talking about, well, okay, well, let's, let's move this from dreaming to manifest, manifesting this. And we created a foundation in Europe called the Ecosystem Rest- Restoration Camps Foundation. Um, we, we, we first wanted to make a cooperative, but we found that making a cooperative had so many challenges because you, you all these authorities wanted to take over the, <clears throat> the thing, whereas if we made a nonprofit, it was simpler. Mm-hmm. And then, then what happened was that... Uh, We ask people like, who? What should we do? Should we go to the to the large capital formations and beg for money to help us do this, or should we try to stand up on our own and do it? And so we said, well, what if we share? And when a thousand people pledged to share ten euros per month, that would be a hundred and twenty euros per year. Then we said, okay. That's, that's a good experiment. Let's try that. And so we created the foundation. They put their money in there. And we started the first camp in Spain. And so the first camp is in the Altiplano in Spain, very similar. They had cut all the oak trees to build the Spanish Armada and the place desertified largely. And they were using plowing and, you know, just very destructive agriculture for centuries and maybe thousands of years. And then it was really degraded and all the people left, except Mm -hmm. for the old people. It was called Territorios Abandonados. So you'd see the ruins of villages and things. And a few people lived out there, but not very many. Mm -hmm. And... It was dry and had you know, hot and the dust would blow across and the hot winds. When hot winds blow, that's an indicator because there's no relative humidity, no respiration, and it desiccates the organic material just on the soil. That's pretty serious. Mm-hmm. So that, it was into a kind of late stage as opposed to early stage. Mm-hmm. And um, so we... but. Another foundation that I'm, I'm the ecosystem ambassador for the Common Land Foundation. And the Common Land Foundation is working to restore that entire region. So a million hectares is trying. But, you know, a million hectares is kind of conceptual to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good if you have like a billion or two billion dollars to, to invest. But I think you have to start a little smaller. Mm-hmm to make an impact in one place and then that has to grow so when the first camp started now there's been some four or five years to to look at so there's data from the camp emerging from the camp but also the second year there was a second camp in mexico and then the third year there were 21 camps and in the fourth year there were 37 camps and now they're going to be probably 50 by the end of this year at least and we could keep going mm-hmm. if enough people join as supporting members. Yeah, and it's only, you know, I'm a member for like $6 a month. I think it's like a coffee, you know. Yeah. Happy to and I love seeing my little email and it reminds me to to keep in touch. 
Um, but the, the one in Spain you were talking about, you saw them regenerate the land over time? Well, it's still just, it's early days, but yes, there are me measurable increases in organic matter, measurable increases in moisture mm -hmm. and avail moisture availability, mm -hmm. which means that the process is being recharged in this small area. Now that has to get bigger. Mm -hmm. And you also have measurable reductions in surface temperatures. Mm -hmm. So these are all very good indicators. Mm -hmm. when, the, when you have increases in biodiversity, it's also a very good indicator. You can start to see microbes and insects and fungus and birds and animals mm -hmm. and, and different kinds of plants returning just yeah. in natural succession. So there are things which we can do to process the soils and to make them as, as nurturing and, and functional as possible. And then the, the legacy genome can reestablish itself because it's there. Mm -hmm. And as that comes back, then you get a, a higher and higher succession mm -hmm. equilibrium. And if you carry that forward for decades and centuries, then you get back to Right. Restored landscapes. And then are people living and working at these camps? Is every camp a little bit different? Like how many people are at these camps? Every camp is different. Yeah. And COVID, COVID has been both good and bad for the, for the thing. So I spent five months in a tent on Mount Shasta. We have a camp called the Hotlam Camp. Mm -hmm. And this is very important for California because it's studying fire ecology it's studying indigenous techniques of prescribed burns it's it's studying forest tending it's more of a wilderness camp it's mm -hmm. right at the edges of the forest so you, you, it's very simple yeah. so some camps are simple and other camps would be beautiful little ancient castles that hmm. you know people are rebuilding and yeah. we, we have one working. do people live there though or do they you can some do people, what you're doing like camp there visit some work. people some people live there uh -huh. there would always be camp coordinators and and core yeah people like if someone listening wanted to get on the ground and go visit and, and learn and work could they kind of contact a camp and sure make sure there are programs there are programs in mm -hmm. in all all the camps and then there are camps, so there's some camps, you know, in California, there's some camps in Europe, in Spain, or in Portugal, or in France, and in Germany, and in the Netherlands, and I think they're forming in Scandinavia, I'm talking about it, and, you know, so there'll be camps in Italy, and camps in, you know, all over, but some are in Somalia, or Syria, or Guatemala, or Kenya, or India, or places, that are more challenged. Mm -hmm. So it depends on, especially the most important thing are the local communities. Mm -hmm. So if the local communities have access to experts and have access to knowledge and they see physically right there, they can come and visit and look at it like, oh, well, there's more biodiversity, there's more water, there's more soil, there's more productivity in agriculture, there's more everything mm -hmm. and there's a community that's working together that you know is making this happen so what i like about this is if you go to the united nations and you talk about the you know the policy things and 
you know, there's a lot of experts who are talking about these things, but they're, it's really almost theoretical. It's, and we don't have theoretical problems. We have physical problems mm-hmm. on a planetary scale. So this causes a kind of anxiety. You know, the climate anxiety is real. And so people, when they are working in ecosystem restoration camps, they can solve this climate anxiety thing right away because they can immediately see, oh, I'm changing things. Mm-hmm. And then, then there's a great satisfaction instead of a great fear. Yeah. And then they understand, well, I've got to keep going. And not only that, come on, everybody, let's do this. And when they do it in one place, then they can say, like here in Hollywood, we have the birdhouse is another uh, urban camp. And they have what's called, they work together with a, another thing, which is called the Soil Sponge Collective. Mm-hmm. And so what they look at is like if they if they have a front yard or a backyard or a space, public space, anything that is available to be restored and there's agreement, a shared intention with the authorities or with the landowner or whatever, like we want to restore this, yeah. then they can show up with 50 people and in a day just transform that thing yeah. and plant 150 different types of meadow flowers and and restore the soils and so on and in doing that you have immediate uh impact and you have immediate um ability to 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 immediately do it you don't have to wait because what you're talking about is in people's front yards in the suburbs right like like big gardens in their front yards that might feed your surrounding like 50 families if there's enough planted in the front yard like that's right it's incredible but but, well we, we have different levels of this you know so yes if you're in a city and you want to have your community get together and sing and eat together why not do this for a few hours yeah and then you, then the whole community can rotate, and they go in, and then when they do one, they can say, "Hey, look over there!" You know, knock, knock, knock. What do you think? You know, you want a desert landscape in your front front yard or backyard, or can we do this? Yeah. And if you're in a neighborhood that's a food, a, a food desert, mm-hmm. or people who really don't have a lot of money, and and they're they're mainly eating cheap junk food without nutrition, well. You know, doing that is like one of the biggest things you can do for their health and for their happiness and so on. So, okay, then you can do that. And then, well, that one can be two, that two can become four, four can become eight and 16, the whole place, the whole thing. And when you do this and when you understand the relationship between and differences between annual plants and, and perennial plants, then you can graduate to the the, the, the orchards, mm-hmm. and the orchards could be nuts and fruits of all kinds, yeah. and they're creating a canopy, and then the canopy is interrupting the solar radiation, and there's moisture, and then the s- surface temperatures are changed, and so when you extrapolate from what you're learning about this one specific place, and you apply it at scale, mm-hmm. and and you have not you have 50 people and then you have 100 people and then you have 1,000 people and then you have 10,000 people and then you have 100,000 people and then you have a million people and they're all you know, having block parties and, and eating <laughs> together and, yeah, and, and singing yeah. and, and doing this. 
there's nothing more valuable that you can do. Yeah. So this takes us to some of the other problems that we have, like the economy is incentivizing destructive behavior. And the economy must in, encourage and incentivize functional ecology and healthy behavior by human beings. Mm-hmm. And that hasn't happened yet. So, but, but in these communities that are forming to do this, that's all they talk about. Mm-hmm. And they recognize that this is true value, real value. This is abundance, not mm-hmm. scarcity. This is compassion and care for one another instead mm-hmm. of selfishness. Yes. Yeah. And these these ecosystem restoration camps are setting an example that it's like living proof, which is so valuable just to be able to see it, to believe it um, and to know that we all have the right to grow food in our homes and that we have people around us that will help. So, oh, my gosh, John. Well, thank you so, so much for everything. You're you're a true philosopher, John. It's really it's a privilege to sit and hear from you. And and well, now I'm old, so I've I've turned 68 and I've had a very full life to this point, um, pretty much consciously. I mean, I made decisions which took me around the world and all over the world, and, and I was stimulated in, in a way that's very rare, I mm-hmm. su- suspect. And I wanted it, but <clears throat> at some point I came to realize that desires are not really are also about suffering. Mm-hmm. So to want things is not really my, what I, I, I don't, I mean, I don't know how to say that. Yeah. I don't want to want. Yeah, yeah. And what I, what I want to do is to serve. Mm-hmm. So I realize that in my life, I've had such incredible privilege. And so... That privilege also is a responsibility. The, the fact that I ha, have been empowered has made my life wonderful. And so I feel like I want to empower more and more people to go on this path. Mm-hmm. Because the more people who take this path, the more beautiful and flourishing the earth is. So we're calling this new television series we're making The Flourishing Path. Because if we go in this direction, we get a different result. But if we keep going in the direction we're going now, we will have further impacts from climate change and biodiversity loss and, well, even racism and war and all these horrible outcomes. So we don't want that. And and I think we're in the majority. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a tiny minority who are advocating for destruction. Yeah. So let's gather the majority together and say, all right, we're going to restore the earth. And in doing that, we're going to have a lot more fun. Yes. And we're not going to be so brokenhearted all the time. And we're going to be compassionate to our brothers and sisters and grandmothers and grandfathers. And, and the earth and our children are going to have a future. Mm-hmm. And generations to come can enjoy life on earth. Yes. Beautiful. The flourishing path. Thank you, John. It's an honor. It's an honor to witness you guys working on this project, too. So thank you.
All right, my friends, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. And again, we'll send you over to ecosystemrestorationcamps.org and Ecosystem Restoration Camps on Instagram so you can learn more about their community, find out how to support them. Again, even if you just are able to give $10 a month, that makes such a beautiful impact and it goes straight into regenerating the land, which is freaking amazing for a coffee or two. So definitely check that out. And uh, Kiss the Ground on Netflix again is an amazing documentary and you can learn more about this work uh, because it's going to take all of us getting more educated and sharing and getting excited and uh, optimistic about our future together. So Again, yes, thank you. And you can find me on Instagram at Helen Denham underscore and uh, HelenDenham.com. And I've recently launched my course, Cultivating Confidence, which is a beautiful self-mastery course with eight modules, including guided meditations and workbook prompts, EFT tapping, shadow work, all the good stuff. I had so much fun creating that for you. So all the information's on my website and... I'll just do a little soft launch on the podcast just for you guys. There's merch up. There's t-shirts and a hat that I designed that are up. Um, Really just fun merch to have and more of that will be coming soon. And I'm just now kind of shooting like actual photos of me in in the hat and in the shirts right now, which is a really fun creative process. But uh, check that out. All the fun stuff. Thank you again for being here. And if you ever have somebody in mind that you're like, oh, I really want to hear Helen talk with them, interview them, hit me up. Let me know who you want to hear on the show. I would love to hear your recommendations and thoughts. Um, But okay, have a beautiful rest of your week. And uh, I love you and I'll talk to you soon. (laughs) Okay, bye for now.